Welcome to the Politics Guys interview, conversations about American politics, economics, history, and culture with authors and researchers from across the ideological spectrum. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Vanderbilt University political scientist Larry Bartels. Dr. Bartels has been a leading scholar in American politics for decades. He's a co-director of Vanderbilt's Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions, a trustee of the Russell Sage Foundation, a past vice president of the American Political Science Association, and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a fellow of the American Academy of Political and Social Science, and a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He's written countless academic journal articles and a number of books, including Democracy for Realists, Why Elections Do Not Produce Responsive Government, which he authored, co-authored sorry, with Christopher Aachen. It was a book that generated a lot of commentary and discussion in, in the political science world and beyond. And so I was very pleased when Dr. Bartels agreed to come on the show and talk with me about it. So, Larry Bartels, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You know, I, I thought maybe we could start by talking about sort of our traditional common view of how voters in a democracy act, something that you've called the folk theory of democracy. So could you uh, tell listeners a little bit about what that folk theory of democracy is? Yes, um, we call it the folk theory because it's not quite the vision of democracy that you read about in Aristotle or Rousseau or contemporary political theorists, but a set of ideas less formally that we think pervade American political culture and shape the way that we all think about democracy. Um, the basic idea is that ordinary citizens can control the course of government through elections by voting for parties and candidates that promise to pursue the specific policies that they prefer. And so elections can be thought of as a kind of referendum on the course of public policy um, with people steering the, the ship of government. Um, prospectively by choosing people who will do what they think is best uh, with respect to policy. And that, that sounds pretty good to me. So what happens when this theory comes up against the, the real world? What, what do we know about how well this, this model holds up? Well, in the aggregate, it doesn't hold up very well, partly for logical reasons. If you stop to think about what majority rule would actually mean applied to the entire range of policy issues that are likely to arise in any given election, it isn't at all obvious what we would mean by saying that the majority is somehow ruling and defining policy. But even aside from that, the behavior of voters mostly isn't up to the standard that's implicitly um, structuring the way people think about the folk theory. First of all, people are unlikely to have detailed, much less well-informed, coherent preferences about even the major policy issues that are likely to arise at any given time. Um, and even if they did have those preferences, they often would lack the kind of information that would be necessary to make judgments about how to translate those preferences into actual policy change. And so this is, and this is something that isn't just based on a few findings here and there. I mean, this is something that has a considerable amount of support, right? 
Well, there's a lot of evidence going back through the half century or more in which we've had detailed survey research focusing on the political opinions and behavior of ordinary citizens to suggest that their views aren't as coherent and well-informed as one might hope or as the folk theory of democracy seems to imply. Um, There are a variety of angles by which you might think about how we would test this general idea, especially at the larger level of the political system. Um, One, for example, which people have studied in a variety of ways in the past few decades, um, is to think about the extent to which elected officials actually do pursue the policies that are preferred by a majority of citizens. And it turns out often that they have much more discretion and are much less um, constrained by public opinion than the folk theory would lead you to believe. If you look, for example, at the overall behavior of members of Congress as they vote on all the issues that come up over a two-year period in Congress, there are vast differences, especially in the contemporary era, between the behavior of Democrats and Republicans. You might say, well, part of that is a reflection of the folk theory. Um, Democratic districts tend to elect Democrats who reflect their preferences, and Republican districts tend to elect Republicans who reflect their preferences. But if you look at the kind of wide middle of districts that are close enough to evenly balanced that they often elect Democrats and at other times elect Republicans, you can see that even within that pretty narrow band of public opinion, um, the Democrats behave vastly different from the Republicans once they're in office. And I think those differences plausibly reflect their own ability to pursue their convictions and to respond to the pressures of their own parties and interest groups rather than to the preferences of the majority of people in their districts. Right. So uh, let me let me put it to you this way. Is it is it too uh too harsh, maybe too cruel, I don't know, to say that most voters, uh not just citizens, but people who actually come out and vote, who presumably are better informed, are actually sort of uh, inattentive, uninformed, irrational, have poor recall, and uh, don't have really good attention spans for political things. Is that, is that, a, is that a fair statement, or am, I, or am I being too harsh on the electorate? Well, I think how harshly you want to judge them depends upon what you think the appropriate standards for citizenship are. And one of the big problems with the folk theory, in our view, is that it's grounded in a very elevated view of what citizens ought to be up to. They ought to be paying careful attention to politics and formulating preferences about all the important issues of the day and figuring out which candidates are likely to pursue the policies that they think are preferable and monitoring carefully the impact of political decisions in their own lives. Those are all very complicated and difficult things to do. Um, People vary a good deal in the extent to which they're attentive to politics and informed about politics. There's a relatively small sliver of the citizenry, the kinds of people that are likely to listen to your podcast and that we're likely to meet in political science courses in college who 
do spend a fair amount of time paying attention to politics and to public policy, but they're a distinct minority within the population as a whole. Most ordinary people are much more concerned about their own jobs and their own families and what's going on in baseball and on television than they are in the political world. Right, which isn't a knock on them. And I'm thinking... Like, for instance, one thing I talk about in, in my economic policy class is uh, the, the Dodd-Frank financial reform law, which, you know, even in trying to explain it to my students, that took quite a bit of time and focus for me to try to present that in a comprehensible way and, and understand it myself. And I do this stuff for a living. And so the idea that a typical uh, American with other things going on would be able to do that is that that does seem to be asking uh, not just a bit but a lot too much. Well, that's right. And then when you multiply that by the thousands of similarly complex issues that yeah. government actually has to address, it really is a kind of um, ridiculous notion that we would expect people to be well informed about everything that's relevant to casting their votes. Yeah. But 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 then, of course, there are people who say, well, wait a second, we have a representative democracy. So, you know, we we vote for people to do this detail work. And if they don't do a good job, voters can do what what we political scientists call retrospective voting. It's kind of see how things turned out and hey, throw the bums out if if they didn't do the job. And I think, you know, it's it's, it's a great theory if it's true. Because that means then voters don't have to necessarily dig into the details of policy, but they can still exercise the control. They can still have that that power. So what about representative democracy and how that holds up in the real world? Um, It is a powerful theory for exactly the reasons that you lay out. It seems to be more realistic in what it expects of the voters. And it's generated a lot of support among political scientists because it seems to be empirically powerful as well. For example, if you look at the variation across presidential elections and how well the incumbent party does, it turns out to be pretty strongly related to how the economy is doing in the run-up to the election. And that's often interpreted as a kind of retrospective voting. People look around and if the economy is doing well, they imagine that the incumbent government is doing a pretty good job and they vote to keep them in office. And if it's going badly, they imagine that that must be because the incumbents are doing poorly and they vote to replace them with some alternative. Um, So as an empirical matter, I think that theory makes a lot of sense. Um, We question whether it's as successful as a normative theory of democracy as people often imagine, in part because we think voters have a lot more difficulty than is often recognized in figuring out whether things are going well or badly. In the case of the economy, conditions are pretty concrete. There's a pretty elaborate government apparatus that's devoted to generating objective information about the state of the national economy. People have personal experience of their own economic situations and of the economic developments in their own communities and their own occupation. So all of that is helpful in getting it right. But even then, there seem to be important peculiarities in the people in the way people respond to economic conditions. One that we point to in our book is that they seem very focused on how the economy is doing in the 
months leading up to the election, but much less sensitive to how the economy is done earlier in the president's term. And so, in effect, they provide rewards and punishments for short-term economic growth or decline, which is probably largely idiosyncratic or accidental, and much less reliably reward or punish presidents for their economic record over their entire term of office. And then when you turn to other kinds of conditions that politicians can plausibly affect, it becomes even harder to see how voters would effectively and reliably monitor their performance. If you think about the environment, for example, most of the environmental conditions that people actually pay attention to turn out not to be very important to the quality of their lives. And the kinds of things that are most important in the long run are mostly things that we can't really see or experience or evaluate in any kind of direct way. And so that's an example of a domain where the connection between performance and reward or punishment is going to be much looser, and much less effective um, than the theory imagines. Right. And so so part of the problem then is that it's not necessarily all that easy to be able to evaluate how things are going. And, and, and it seems to me a second related problem is that it's oftentimes not necessarily all that easy to be able to uh, attribute responsibility. I mean, Right. We have a we don't have a parliamentary system, so there's not a single party in power. And, and even when, you know, like right now we have Republicans controlling both chambers and the presidency, there's still enough of a, a Democratic minority to filibuster and there are intraparty conflicts and that sort of thing. So it, it, that makes it more complex as well. Correct. Well, I think that's a specific aspect of the U.S. system that probably makes it harder for citizens to hold elected officials accountable. The way they seem to get around that problem in practice is simply to hold the president responsible for all kinds of things that happen, regardless of what kinds of um, roadblocks or obstacles might be thrown up by either the opposition party or other political forces. But there's an even broader issue here to worry about, which is how much we know about the extent to which any policy decisions by politicians are important to producing the good or bad outcomes that we see around us. A kind of semi-humorous, but I think illustrative example that we write about in the book is um, a case in New Jersey in 1916 in which there was a series of shark attacks that tourism industry, and not surprisingly, in the wake of all these dramatic shark attacks, the tourists stayed away in droves during the height of the summer tourist season, and so people were um, badly hurt by that, and we showed by looking at voting patterns uh, within the state and across uh, time that the citizens who were put out by the shark attacks uh, punished Woodrow Wilson, President Wilson, at the polls in 1916. Now, obviously, Wilson wasn't going to do anything about stopping the sharks from biting, um, but people translated their economic pain into punishment of the incumbent president in a way that was um, probably not very sensible. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Um, now, I'm sure, though, some listeners would say, well, you know, yeah, that's that's true for 
these other people, um, these, you know, what are sometimes called low information voters, but not me. You know, I stay up on the issues. I well, listen to podcasts, watch the news. I read a bunch of news on, you know, online and other places. Is, is this so is this less of a problem for more informed voters? Um, there's a lot of variation across the population in terms of how attuned people are to politics. And the people who are more attuned are, I think, better able to sound like the folk theory of democracy says they should sound. That is, if you ask them why they vote the way they do, they can tell you all kinds of stories about why it is that they're voting for one side or the other. Or if you ask them, you know, why they prefer this policy or that policy, they can rehearse to you some arguments for why that's a sensible set of views. Our argument is that, for the most part, that superstructure of political reasoning is a kind of um, afterthought, a, a byproduct of more basic political forces that drive the views not only of uninformed people, but also of highly informed people. One of the things that I've studied and that we write about a bit in the book is biases in people's perceptions of objective circumstances. If you look, for example, at how Democrats or Republicans assess the state of the economy, there are big differences that are only plausibly attributable to partisan biases. And you might think, well, people you know, make stuff up because they don't really know. They're not paying close attention. But people who are better informed and listening to the news and paying careful attention to what's going on are much more likely to get the facts right. It turns out pretty consistently across a range of different studies in different domains that the exact opposite is true. The people who are generally most attentive to politics are the ones who are most likely to be biased in their perceptions of what's going on in the world because they understand what's at stake and they understand how the world ought to be given their political predispositions and prejudices. So in some ways, um, although they sound better, they may be as bad or worse as the people who are paying very limited attention to politics. Yeah, so I guess another way to put it is confirmation bias affects uh, affects us all, regardless of our uh, intelligence or amount of information we uh, we uh, take in about politics. Well, right, and the more informed and attentive people are, the more likely they are to have gravitated to one side or the other of the basic partisan division in the country. There's a kind of stereotype that you know. Um, Independent voters are well-informed in weighing the merits of specific candidates and issues rather than defaulting to some kind of partisan prejudice. But in fact, people without partisan loyalties tend to be relatively uninformed and uninterested. And the people who are better informed and better, more interested are almost invariably um, pretty committed on one side or the other of the partisan divide and therefore more subject to these confirmation biases that you're talking about. Which which really makes sense if you think about it in, in a variety of areas, because the idea of just being disinterestedly interested for the sake of democracy, that just doesn't, that doesn't, you know, it make a lot of sense to me. You would, you would just naturally follow that the people who are most interested have some sort of emotional stake in it, like strongly partisan Democrats or Republicans. 
So we've, we've spent a lot of time already talking about things that don't work or ways that voters, you know, don't act, the things that they don't base their decisions on. So let's turn to actually what, what you believe they do base their decisions on and how they do make their choices. Well, for most individuals, I think the most powerful forces in shaping their views about politics are social identities and group attachments of various sorts. Uh, specifically, what those are depend a lot on the person and on the political setting. If you think about contemporary American politics, for example, racial group identities are a very powerful force in shaping the way people think about politics. For a long time, we scholars only thought about that in connection with the view of African Americans who, over the last half century, have been very reliably and consistently strong supporters of the Democratic Party. Uh, more recently, we've begun to notice that the same kind of dynamics operate among majority groups as well as minority groups. And so there's growing interest now in white identity and the ways in which white identity shapes the perceptions of at least a significant portion of the electorate. But there are all kinds of attachments that are more or less politically relevant in different times and places. Um, religious commitments, economic commitments stemming from particular occupational or industry associations. Um, in some cases, you know, um, aspects of people's lives that might often have been thought of as apolitical become political in different contexts. So for a long time, people thought about the differences in political interests between men and women as not really being a part of the political debate. But over the last few decades, um, issues connected to sex and gender have become increasingly prominent. And as a result, we've seen a kind of sharper differentiation of people's political perspectives and views um, based on their sexual identities and orientations. Um, think about gun ownership. Uh, in some respects, uh, you can imagine a world in which that would be pretty irrelevant to people's political views, but because of the controversies over gun control and gun laws periodically in the U.S. over at least the last half century, um, we've seen a pretty elaborate and powerful melding of people's views of themselves and what gun ownership means in their lives and their lifestyles with um, political and even specifically partisan interests. So uh, all of those kinds of group identities are important. For many people, the specific inheritance of partisan identities from their families are important, despite all of the political change that we've observed for many people. If you try and figure out why they're Democrats or Republicans today, the answer turns out to have a lot to do with the fact that they grew up being strongly socialized as Republicans or Democrats by their parents for reasons that may no longer be directly relevant in the current political setting, but that still have imbued them with a way of thinking about the world that turns out to be important. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I mean, I've, I've been a political scientist now for, for a bit over 20 years, and, and it seems to me, I mean, this is the sort of thing that we were talking about when I was a, when I was a graduate student and so forth. And, you know, the idea of, of uh, these group affiliations and socialization being important factors. But it seems, I think, to a lot of people, myself included, that this has gotten, I guess, worse is the word I'll use, in, in recent years. Uh, is there, I mean, and certainly we hear that from a lot of places, is there any evidence other than anecdotal evidence that you hear all over the, the media to support that view? Well, first of all, I guess I'll resist the use of the term worse. Okay, I think these enough. identities and attachments, you know, often do a great deal of good in their a meaningful positive force in people's lives and pursuing them through the political process makes a lot of sense. But you're right, there are other instances in which they're likely to be counterproductive. Um, there are some respects, I think, in which they've become stronger over time. If you think particularly about party identification, um, there are some pretty careful studies that suggest that people are more wrapped up in their identity as Republicans or Democrats and more likely to think well or badly of politicians or even people that they meet in the course of their ordinary lives based on their partisan identities. Um, but I think in part that's probably a kind of uh, artifact of the particular historical period in which we have those kinds of data. These kinds of studies typically start in the 1950s or 60s and go to the present. And over that period, I think there has been a kind of ratcheting up of emotional intensity connected to partisan identification. But if you go back further in American political history, it seems pretty likely that people were at least as wrapped up in partisanship in the late 19th century or certainly in the run-up to the Civil War as they are now. So it may be that the kind of mid-20th century period that we implicitly take as the benchmark for these kinds of comparisons is itself a really unusual circumstance in the broader scope of American history. And, and I mean, and there are some uh, political scientists that I, I think mostly of of uh, Morris Fiorina from Stanford, who just have continually for, for years now have argued that all of this focus on how incredibly polarized the electorate is, is just not is just not accurate, essentially. Well, there's an important distinction here. Fiorina has written mostly about polarization as measured by people's policy views. And if you take seriously the folk theory of democracy and its instantiation in political science in terms of ideology and issue voting and the idea that people carefully figure out which candidate or party is closest to their own policy views and vote on that basis, then that's a pretty sensible way to think about polarization. And from that perspective, I think he's right that there still are relatively few extremists in ideological terms in the American public. Um, there is a development in which people's views across a range of different issues have begun to cohere more and you know fall more consistently on one or the other side of the partisan divide than used to be the case. But more importantly, people who've um, shown stronger evidence for polarization, I think, have mostly relied on 
other kinds of concepts and measures that have to do with this sense of identity and the sense of um, kind of emotional or visceral support or opposition for a particular party and its candidates rather than necessarily cashing things out in terms of policy preferences. And that's a way of thinking about things that seems to make more sense within this framework that we tried to lay out in our book where um, the real political battles are more likely to be about group attachments and you know, symbolic validation of social identities than about um, ideology or policy preferences and how they differ. Which is really kind of frustrating on a level because if if people tend to be not necessarily all that far apart on a lot of actual policy issues, and it's just these these you know these intense uh, polarized uh, attachments and and dislikes in many cases of the other side that's keeping us from getting to policy solutions. That's a, well, that's a real bummer. Well, um, again, I don't want to dismiss the reality and the importance of these social attachments sure. and what they mean to people. Um, if you think about, you know, um, Catholics who supported John Kennedy when he ran for the presidency in 1960 and Protestants who opposed him, um, I think it would be very difficult to interpret those political reactions in terms of policy issues or concerns. I don't think people really thought that Kennedy was going to turn the American policymaking process over to the Pope in Rome. Um, on the other hand, the validation of Catholicism and its place in American society was something that probably was genuinely important to Catholics. And so the fact that they were translating that particular identity into political behavior was probably not so surprising and maybe not a bad thing. Yeah. So to what extent do you think that the, the election of, of Donald Trump is, well, in, in a way, I guess, like a, a really a symptom of a lot of the things that we've been talking about? I mean, that, to me, it, it's still sometimes difficult for me to grasp that a you know a reality TV star who'd never held political office or served in the military, who had no, I mean, seriously deep ties with the party and had a bunch of scandals that this person could be elected president. Um, is that, is that, is Donald Trump kind of the culmination of, of a lot of this, would you say? Well, his election certainly was a surprise to a lot of people, including me. Um, our book was published in early 2016 and didn't say anything at all about Trump specifically, but I think people found it useful in thinking about the Trump phenomenon because it emphasized, um, the way that ordinary citizens' behavior could produce kind of remarkable and unaccountable political outcomes. Um, the first thing that I think is important to know about Trump is that his rise to the Republican nomination was, I think, uh, facilitated by some of the pitfalls of the folk theory of democracy as it's institutionalized in the American political system, particularly in the system by which we nominate presidential candidates. Um, we used to have a much more flexible and elite-centered process for nominating candidates. The downside of that, people would refer to the smoke-filled rooms in which political professionals would pick the people. 
people they wanted to be the candidates, but there was something in that that was valuable. They were people who had a big stake in the party and its success in the long term. They were people who had a lot of experience with the likely political candidates, you know, the likely potential nominees, and would probably have weeded out somebody like Trump pretty quickly. But in our enthusiasm for democracy and the will of the people, uh, we've changed the nominating process into one that's much more centered on primary voters and casting ballots in primary elections from state to state over a period of time. That's a difficult process to manage in part just because unlike the general election where we have a pretty simple choice between two major parties, um, most nominating contests involve lots of candidates with lots of different combinations of group attachments and loyalties and backgrounds and political views. And so sorting all of that out through a series of elections can be a very clunky process. And in this case, Trump benefited from having a relatively small but intense factional support within the Republican Party that were going to vote for him no matter what. And there was a larger group of Republicans who weren't that enthusiastic about Trump but didn't coalesce behind any single alternative to him until very late in the process. And as a result, he was nominated despite probably not being in any real sense the you know, favorite candidate of Republican primary voters as a group. Once he had the nomination, then the really striking thing is that these partisan loyalties kicked in so powerfully. And um, as with other recent Republican candidates, he got probably somewhere upward of 90% of Republican voters supporting him in spite of uh, how unusual he was as a Republican candidate and in spite of the fact that um, most of the living previous Republican presidential nominees and many of the conservative intellectuals in the party were strongly opposed to his candidacy. Yeah. Well, you know, there are some people who actually have argued that the election of Donald Trump, you could, you could chalk it up to what you might call a, a technical problem. Um, and let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Just, just recently, I was talking to uh, Glenn Weil, who uh, he recently came out with the book uh, Radical Markets, which he wrote with uh, Eric Posner. And they, they have a lot of various proposals, but one of them is for something called quadratic voting, which I won't get into the details, but it's basically a, a somewhat complex system where people get like a certain number of vote credits each election cycle. Then you can spend them by voting for or against the candidate. And then each additional vote costs the square of however many vote credits you get. So two votes for four credits, three votes for nine credits, and so forth and so on. And, and what their argument is for this is that it'll actually empower people to have more of a voice and result in a more representative democracy. And I mean, there are other plans like this as well. Uh, you know, rank choice voting, voting, for instance, is a, a sort of a simpler variant of this. And, and I'm just wondering what you think about this argument that, well, what we really need to do is just make what I think you could say is essentially a technical fix to our voting system, and that would that would uh, make things a lot better. Um, there are all kinds of suggestions of this sort going back for centuries uh, in response to the 
logical limitations of the notion of majority rule that I mentioned before. Um, all of them depend to varying degrees on the idea that people are going to be sufficiently attentive and committed and well-informed to work the system appropriately. I think that's more or less questionable depending upon how complicated the specifics of any particular system are likely to be. Um, but I think they also point to a broader indeterminacy about what it is that we think majority rule or the will of the people more generally is supposed to mean. For example, having some kind of system of weighted voting would tend to give more power to the people who have intense preferences about a particular issue or a particular race. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't think in democratic theory there's any agreed upon way to consider how the intensity of people's preferences ought to factor into the decision. Um, our view is that a more constructive way to proceed is to recognize the importance of leadership and to try and develop systems in which the relationship between leaders and followers is likely to be healthier and more legitimate and in which, to go back to the point you made before about representative government, people are better able to invest political authority in people that they can trust to pursue their interests. Yeah. Well, and I want I definitely want to talk a lot about your your solution, solution sounds like too big of a word, but your way of, 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 of maybe ameliorating some of these problems. But before we get to that, there are also people who say that there's a simpler solution to all this, that the problem really is that we have too much democracy. You mentioned, you know, the opening up of primaries and, you know, what happened to that. And then, you know, there, but there are also folks like, for instance, uh, uh, the economist Brian Kaplan has suggested, I believe, more votes for people who are more economically literate. Then uh, there's Jason Brennan, who's a political philosopher, who in a, a book uh, against democracy said essentially that he, well, I won't, maybe I won't go so far as saying it was silly to urge people to vote more, but he made this analogy, uh, it would be bad if no one farmed, but that doesn't imply that everyone should farm. And it kind of stuck with me. And I'm wondering, what do you think about proposals like this saying that essentially we just need to make the system, in essence, less democratic? And if we make it harder to vote in a way or, or you know, raise the bar, then we're going to get voters who are more in line kind of with this folk theory of democracy, essentially, and therefore better results. I mean, that's maybe oversimplifying the, the argument, but I think that's the, the crux of it. Yeah, um, there are different dimensions of more or less democracy, and I think it's important to distinguish among them. Um, in thinking about the particular examples that you mentioned, I would distinguish especially between proposals that have to do with the scope of democracy in terms of what kinds of decisions are left directly to voters and um, what kinds of decisions we expect them to be able to make. We have disparaging things to say in our book about the over-reliance on referenda and initiatives in places like California, where voters are expected to make direct policy decisions about all kinds of pretty detailed uh, policy issues. If you look at what happens in those cases, one important pattern is that special interests tend to be 
even more influential than they are in other places because they're the ones who often are involved in framing the questions that people are responding to, but also that people often make pretty important systematic mistakes. Um, we have an example uh, based on research by one of our students who looked at fire districts in Illinois where um, they were at one point required to have a popular vote in order to increase the fire department's budget beyond a certain level. And sure enough, people started to vote against increases in the fire department budgets. Um, they saved a few pennies on their taxes. The fire department's responses to fires were slower and less effective, and they suffered more damage as a result, and probably their insurance rates went up more than they saved in taxes. So that's a kind of nice illustration of voters shooting themselves in the foot by having direct control over things that would probably be better left to representatives. Um, but then there's another dimension of more or less democracy that has to do with the scope of participation and the extent to which everybody is effectively enfranchised and participating in the political process. And there, I think the big problem with a lot of the suggestions uh, about trying to limit the electorate somehow is that, as I've already suggested, often the people who are most informed and best educated are the ones who are dumbest in terms of their political thinking and their political decisions. Um, I don't think there's a very strong correlation between formal education or the score that somebody would get on a quiz of uh, you know, political civics information and how effective they're likely to be in pursuing their own interests in the electoral process. Right. And I guess another another issue would be that, of course, there's a long and uh, unfortunate history of using tests and, and standards like that to, uh, to, to discriminate against certain groups and keep that disenfranchise them. Um, yeah. I mean, one problem is that by our lights, at least, the general sorts of tests that someone would come up with starting within the intellectual framework of the folk theory of democracy are mostly miscast or misdirected. Um, but then when you get down to the specific concrete details of how this would work, uh, they would be implemented by somebody who has a strong political interest in having things turn out one way rather than another. And so that makes it difficult to imagine that we would get a reform that effectively reflected uh, what we were trying to do, even if we could agree on what we were trying to do. Yeah. All right. So we, we've talked an awful lot about problems and difficulties and, and uh, limitations, cognitive uh, of, of, and otherwise uh, of voters. So, but, but there's got to be a solution, I hope, at least partially. And, and you talk about that in the book. So what sort of things do you propose to you know, to, to make this situation a little bit better, to make democracy a bit more representative and to work better in the end? Well, we certainly don't have a solution, anything like a kind of comprehensive plan to make democracy work better. Um, one set of possibilities that we point to is to try to get under control our enthusiasm for the voice of the people and giving people uh, a direct say over policy questions. There are some instances in which that's probably likely to be very valuable, but many others in which it's likely to be counterproductive. And so um, 
in the course of the 2016 primary process, we used the logic of our book to argue that the primary process has gone too far in the direction of trying to give people a direct control over uh, the choice of a presidential nominee. In terms of the way voters' interests are reflected in government, I guess our view is that most of what goes on that's important has to do with the way these group attachments and social identities actually get translated into political pressure on elected officials. And that has to do partly with the way parties are organized and the nature of party coalitions, but also with the way government operates and the way these groups are set up to have an impact on bargaining within the government regarding specific policy issues. So one step that's likely to be important in that process is the extent to which different groups are in fact organized. We know that there's a huge bias in terms of the extent of political organization and the way interest groups are set up and able to influence the policymaking process. So having, for example, better organized and better funded groups that represent the interests of uh, working class and poor people by comparison with corporations and professional associations would presumably be a good thing in terms of helping to level the governmental playing field. Another thing that's important is the extent to which those groups actually do represent the genuine interests of their constituents. Um, any organized group of that sort generates its own um, priorities and its own incentives for the group leaders to do things that may not actually comport with the interests of the group. And so one of the things that political scientists used to study quite a lot but have kind of lost interest in, it seems, in recent decades is the political organization and operation of private associations and groups of this sort. Um, to what extent are the leaders of these groups actually accountable to their members, if not through some formal political process of voting, at least through social connections and social pressures of one kind or another. And then looming over all of this is the big issue of political inequality stemming in significant part from the vast economic inequality that we have in certainly the contemporary U.S., but in most contemporary democratic systems. We, again, in the framework of the folk theory, have this idea that even if people are very unequal in other realms of life, once they get into the voting booth, it's one person, one vote. And so uh, the majority of ordinary citizens can control what happens. But in fact, the problem of trying to insulate the political process from these vast inequalities in other domains of life is quite difficult and based on the evidence that we have, you know, not very effective in the U.S. or in other advanced democracies, for that matter, um, studies of the relative influence of affluent and poor people in the U.S. are hugely dispiriting in terms of documenting the extent to which the responsiveness of politicians insofar as they're responsive to the views of citizens are skewed in the direction of affluent citizens by comparison with middle class and poor people. And 
to those who think that these are, you know, just technical failings of the U.S. political system that have to do with Citizens United and gerrymandering of congressional districts and maybe American political culture, um, going overseas and finding similar kinds of patterns in what are supposed to be more civilized, advanced democracies in Western Europe and other places suggests that the problems are really very difficult uh, and that no democracy comes close in practice to the cheery view that citizens are equal in the political process because they each cast one vote or at least are allowed to cast one vote. You know, but you brought up inequality, and, and it's obviously not just uh, economic. But whenever, whenever I'm teaching any kind of public policy class, you know, uh, we we get to the end of of, uh, of looking at an issue, and we we talk about some what seem like some worthwhile solutions, even if they're not, you know, fix alls, and then. We we run into this catch twenty two, and my students get very frustrated with me. They say, "Well, how is all this going to happen if the people who are, you know, currently in power and are very well served by the system and the institutional setup and the incentives we have, if they're the people who need to make these changes?" And uh, honestly, I don't have a really good answer to give them. And maybe you have a better answer for your students because I'm sure they ask the same thing than I do. If so, I'd love to hear it. No, I think it's a very difficult question, and I'm generally pessimistic about the likely effectiveness of all kinds of reforms that people kind of casually assume would fix the the problems of democracy. Um, I think in certain circumstances, you can try to find clever ways to mitigate those problems, if not do away with them entirely. For example, you pointed to the fact that incumbent politicians usually have a pretty strong say in whether the system gets changed and how it gets changed. And in most respects, they are well served by the current system and likely to prefer the status quo to change. But in other ways, they're probably inconvenienced and unhappy with the current situation in ways that might be exploited to produce reform. If you think about the campaign finance system, for example, um, incumbents as a group benefit relative to challengers by the fact that they have access to lots of sources of big campaign contributions. But um, especially once they leave office, they complain bitterly about how much of their time they have to spend struggling to raise money rather than focusing on the policy issues that really are likely to have drawn them into politics in the first place. And so you could imagine developing some system that mitigates their need to spend so much time, even if it turns out that um, you have to make allowances for protecting some of the advantage that they have over challenges in the system. Right. That makes sense. Uh, so I know we're running a little short on time, but I have one final question for you, kind of a big picture question. Um, uh, Winston Churchill uh, s- supposedly said the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. Um, that kind of a pessimistic sort of thing, and that ties in, I think, to a lot of what you were, were talking about. We've been talking about this last hour, but he also said democracy is the worst form of government except all the, except all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. And so I'm wondering if you, in the end, uh, agree with Churchill that as 
flawed, deeply flawed as it seems to be, we really don't have any better options than democracy. I think in a general sense, that's certainly right. And we're enthusiastic for trying to find the right form of democracy within the kind of broad tradition of democratic theory rather than to do away with it and replace it with something entirely different. But again, there are big questions about exactly what it is that democracy means, even thinking about your two quotes from Churchill. The first one emphasizes the direct role of ordinary citizens in controlling the course of government. And on that score, um, as Churchill said, it can be dispiriting to talk to ordinary citizens. But if you think about Churchill's own political career, he certainly had a great deal of respect for the importance of leadership in democratic systems. And I think, you know, as he was leading the resistance of the free world to fascism and Nazism, um, presumably thought of what he was doing as an important part of the democratic process. But on the other hand, he absolutely wasn't paying attention to whatever the current opinion polls said about exactly how he should be running the government or running the war. Um, so I think that's an instance of how we can think about democracy in a broader way that avoids some of the problems that Aiken and I pointed to in the behavior of individual citizens, but still produce a governmental system that, in a real sense, is dedicated to furthering the interests of ordinary citizens rather than to some specific group or ideology set apart from the citizenry as a whole. Right, which is what which is what we all we all want, or at least we all should want, I would argue. So well with that we will close. Larry Bartels, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Support from listeners just like you is what keeps the show going, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll see there. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast app you use. Share this episode with your friends and followers, and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post things throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguyspage. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.